Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. The railway connecting China and Europe is probably the symbol of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, in Europe and Asia. The steady flow of trains and goods has been disrupted by overspill from the war in Ukraine, but also infrastructure projects, especially in Ukraine, are in jeopardy. How is the Russian invasion of Ukraine changing the BRI? What can be expected for projects in Russia and Europe? Will shocks be even felt in other parts of the BRI world? My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and to answer these and other questions, I'm joined by Francesca Giretti and Jacob Madel, analyst and research fellow at Merix, respectively. Both have co-authored the recent Merix Global China Inc. tracker that featured the effects of the war in Ukraine prominently. Francesca, Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Johannes. It has now been over two months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine started. Jacob, what immediate effect does the war have on the BRI in Europe? So putting aside projects in Ukraine for the moment, I think, as you mentioned, the biggest impact in my mind is on this uh, China-Europe rail freight phenomenon, which in, especially in Germany, we sometimes refer to as the new Silk Road. So I, I don't want to get bogged down in terminology, but I feel like I'll just clarify what I'm talking about here. So we have the Belt and Road Initiative, right, which we can agree is a, a fairly ambiguous concept or label that we can apply to essentially any Chinese activity overseas nowadays. And then we have this belt portion of the Silk Road economic belt, um, which is also vague, but has this kind of continental flavor connecting China and Europe and referring to connectivity broadly. And then we have the phenomenon we're talking about, China-Europe rail freight. Uh, which we consider a part of the larger BRI and, like you said, a very important symbol. It's about connectivity. It's about connecting China and Europe across the continent, creating new trade routes, sort of reinvigorating perhaps neglected economies. And and we're not talking about the actual railroads here, I don't think. We're talking about the creation of services along a variety of routes, which China collects under this brand of China-Europe Rail Express. So I, th I think a lot of people think that Beijing went out and built these railroads. Um, they didn't, but they created the, the the services and sort of boosted demand by subsidizing these routes. And you saw sort of lots of Chongqing to Duisburg and Yiwu to London routes starting up. And you have dozens of these now. They had a fairly organic origin uh, around 2011, just as a way to connect um, consumers in Europe with producers in Western China of sort of mainly electronics. Um, and then traffic along these routes sort of exploded. So in 2011, when this wasn't really a phenomenon, you had about 17 trains. And last year, the Chinese figures were, uh, there were up to 15,000 trains. So this was huge explosion of uh, traffic, but still quite a small percentage of total trade, you have to bear in mind. Um, around 8% of China-Europe trade in, in general. So still most of it's going by sea, but it's still up from a fairly insignificant amount. Um, and during the pandemic, of course, China-Europe rail freight really got a chance to prove itself as a viable alternative because people were turning to it amid supply chain difficulties and, and record high shipping rates. And of course, now the trouble is a vast bulk of this traffic goes through Russia. And the war in Ukraine isn't itself the problem. It's not that 
these railroads are disrupted by bombs or any difficulties in Ukraine, um, because it mostly goes goes through Russia and uh, at least half of it uh, sort of enters the EU through Russia and Belarus. Rather, it's the general risk associated with the conflict uh, and also the sort of danger, the risk posed by sanctions. Um, and even the sanctions themselves don't actually target the movement of freight through Russia. They don't ban it. But Russian Railways is on the sanctions list. And I think what's happening is many companies just don't want to take the risk of falling foul of the sanctions regime. And this is especially true of European companies, of course. But also, I think we're seeing a lot of caution from Chinese companies and from China in general. So I think it might become a little clearer to especially Chinese companies how they might be able to help Russia while steering clear of sanctions. And I've seen reports of incentives like uh, war insurance and UN payment schemes being set up to help traffic along. And of course, Chinese state media and officials haven't been admitting anything is wrong. But anecdotally, from reports I've seen, traffic is down 50 to 80 percent from pre-war figures. So it is definitely being hit. And it's it's not insignificant in terms of uh, supply chain disruption. I think probably a, a bigger concern might be a lockdown and COVID in, in China itself, but it's, it still adds to the difficulties. But like I said, this is still a fairly small percentage of total trade. So I think to my mind, the the biggest impact on the BRI is this symbolic one, the sort of symbol of connectivity in Belt and Road being disrupted like this, especially at its peak when it was proving itself in in the pandemic um, to be a viable alternative. It's now had its uh, prospects shot. While we're on the topic of the China-Europe Railway Express, there is sometimes now talk about a rerouting of that traffic line as you said it runs mostly through russia so technically you could find a way around russia there's not many but it would be possible um it's sometimes called the the middle corridor could you give your assessment on that option so according to the china railways plan there is a sort of southern leg of the china Europe rail express which is to be constructed uh, and this involves going from china into kyrgyzstan and through Uzbekistan. And this is a prospective railway. It hasn't been built and has been delayed for years and talked about for years. And I don't see the prospects of this being built anytime soon as very high. There's also the possibility of going into Kazakhstan and then you could go down into Uzbekistan or go straight across the Caspian Sea into Azerbaijan and then cross Georgia into Turkey and then arrive safely in Europe. So this is this is a viable option, and there is traffic along this route. I'm a little skeptical of this option, partly because I made this trip in reverse, which reinforced in my mind how difficult it is. The Caspian Sea crossing isn't a case of sort of just hopping on a boat and traveling across the, the lake and hopping off the other end. It's uh, quite a difficult crossing with um, not very sophisticated infrastructure. and this perception of mine is actually backed up by by some figures which I managed to, to find. So we had an announcement recently that they would be upping the capacity of this route to uh, a total of 3,000 uh, TEUs per week, which is equivalent to 30 to 40 
trains. And then with the addition of three new ships on this route, we have 60 to 80 trains. But you have to bear in mind that in 2021, the total shipment volume of the China Railway Express on the main route uh, was 1.46 million TEUs, or about 27.5 thousand per week. So that puts it in perspective in terms of the amount that can be absorbed. And again, you have to be skeptical of these 100% increases when you're considering the bigger picture, because I think it's something like 2020 to 2021, we had another 100% increase. But if you look at the sort of total volume, this is about equivalent to going from one large container ship to 1.5 large container ships worth of goods. So it's a drop in the ocean of global trade. Um, But there is some capacity there. Um, I think in my mind, the biggest opportunity for the middle corridor is as a connectivity within the region. I think that's where countries should and probably are focusing on rather than capturing China-Europe trade, which they they could do and make some money off. It's just very important and generally a public good if there's better connectivity within the region and between these countries. How has the government in Beijing adapted the BRI in the wake of the war, Francesca? I would say that it has not necessarily adapted the BRI itself as much as it has adapted its diplomatic outreach to the countries mostly in the global south. And uh, this is driven mostly, I think, by two reasons. One is uh, diversification, so the idea of becoming as resilient as possible in a potential future scenario where what we could call the West may impose sanctions on other countries that have spillover on China or sanctions on China itself. And the second reason is also to show that there is a world that is different from that that is depicted by, again, pass me the term, Western countries and the liberal system where you have, and here we go back historically, a sort of a non-aligned group of countries. And these countries that China has been reaching out to are countries that are not directly involved in the Ukrainian conflict, mostly. One example is China reviving the BRICS. Of course, this was in the agenda, but now right after the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, they announced that they're going to host the 14th BRICS summit, which again, it was in the agenda, but the the announcement itself has a symbolic significance. Um, They announced the opening of uh, vaccine R&D centers, uh, which for now they're gonna be digital. And in the future, they're gonna become physical. And this shows two things. One is what we have just mentioned. So the outreach to the global south and the highlighting of the importance of minilateral groupings for China again. And the second point is this new intangible dimension of connectivity, because now, of course, the new connectivity that we've seen from China, but also from other countries, is not just about infrastructures, it's also about research and development. And after the pandemic, vaccines, of course, have quite an important, uh, occupy quite an important position. And then the other thing that signals that indeed China has been pushing its outreach in the global south, trying to diversify and you know um, strengthen its diplomatic relations with this country is that between the beginning of the invasion by Russia of Ukraine and now, 
Wang Yi has met about 30 representatives from different countries in the world. So there's definitely a push from Beijing to proactively engage as many countries as possible. So Francesca, you just mentioned that uh, Beijing is kind of diversifying the BRI. And maybe for, for some listeners, BRI is still just a, a connectivity between Europe and, and China, but it has spread much further beyond that, hasn't it? Indeed, it has. Um, now there are 149 countries that have signed into the BRI with different types of agreements. And of course, this means that it goes well beyond the connection between China and Europe. And to be honest, the majority of countries do belong to the Global South. Turning back to Jacob, uh, you wrote in the Global China Inc. Tracker that the war has spoiled the prospects of a BRI renaissance in Ukraine. What developments gave hope for this renaissance prior to the war? So there were two documents signed, really, one in late 2020, which was a cooperation document between Beijing and Kyiv on the Belt and Road. And then in June uh, the following year, Kyiv withdrew its signature from an international statement on Chinese human rights abuses in Xinjiang. So this move was allegedly made in response to Chinese threats to withhold COVID-19 vaccine supplies. And then just six days later, Ukraine and China signed an agreement on infrastructure cooperation, uh, paving the way for Ukraine to access roughly one billion US dollars worth of low interest loans. So the people I spoke to in Ukraine at the time denied the connection, but the events are there, whether there's a sort of causal link or not, it seems a little suspicious to me. But at the time, it indicated Ukraine perhaps not necessarily reorientating away from the West, that's not really what was happening, but certainly sort of a new opening to Beijing. And in the past, infrastructure projects, BRI infrastructure projects hadn't really progressed very far. Uh, Chinese contracted projects had a lot of failures and all these government to government deals were sort of stimmied by, I think, mainly um, Ukraine's public procurement system and China's insistence that these contracts go to Chinese companies if there was Chinese financing, which is the sort of typical BRI model. And around this time, 2021, uh, we were starting to see Ukraine give a little more room for um, the public procurement system to sort of be circumvented. It should be noted, not just with Chinese companies, actually with a French company, they were moving to sort of hand a project to a, a French company as well. But with, I think the Chinese projects planned, uh, one of them was a Kiev uh, bypass road. Um, there was an another big road planned. So it, it was looking like BRI projects might go somewhere after really not going very far for the, the previous years. So I don't think these BRI projects are going to be uh, the top priority on anyone's mind when it comes to reconstructing Ukraine. And I don't think the hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions in uh, reconstruction bills are uh, going to be paid for in Beijing. They're obviously going to be a European effort. You're not going to see the situation we had in, in Afghanistan where China became quite heavily involved in reconstruction and the BRI sort of spread after the US withdrawal. 
I think mainly just for geographical reasons, because Afghanistan is a Chinese neighbor of a security concern directly to China and to Western China, whereas Ukraine is sort of firmly in the European neighborhood. And depending on how the, the conflict uh, resolves, hoping it does resolve favorably, there's going to be probably a stronger Western orientation of Ukraine after this. And they'll probably be a memory of uh, China's pro-Russian, anti-Western stance of neutrality. I don't think there's going to be hostility between China and Ukraine. There'll certainly be a sort of greater lack of trust than there was before this. As the BR is changing in reaction to the war in Ukraine, uh, what developments should European policymakers pay attention to, Francesca? I think there are two developments and probably one lesson to be learned. The two developments is first, well before the BRI was driving large part of China's foreign policy and outreach to foreign countries. Now the BRI becomes one of the element of this diplomatic outreach and no longer the main driver. And this leads us to sort of the second element that we should pay attention to, which is Well, indeed, before we were already debating about what to label as BRI and what not to, right now it becomes even more important to expand our understanding of what the BRI is, because the BRI is becoming much less tangible than it was before, and R&D agreements need to be considered as part of the BRI as this new vision that Beijing has. Um, And this, of course, creates complications into how do we map it, how do we keep track of it, and what is it, and what is the strategic element to it. And from this, we should take one major lesson for, for example, Global Gateway and European Connectivity Initiatives. Connectivity initiatives cannot be just about development. They are agreements between two countries where both have an interest. The European Union cannot just provide unilateral development projects. There needs to be a strategic component because other countries know that there is a strategic component at the end of the day. This needs to be clear. And Global Gateway does have to have a geopolitical and geoeconomic drive. So I think this is the main lesson that we need to take from the BRI. I don't think Global Gateway or other connectivity initiatives need to shadow or copy uh, the developments in the BRI, but I indeed use those elements that are useful for us to develop a better connectivity initiative is what we should do. Do you want to add anything to that, Jacob? Just one thing that the war in Ukraine has highlighted for me is the potentially fertile ground in the global south for uh, China's overtures and China's positioning of itself as a a leader of uh, South-South cooperation. I think there's perhaps a lack of sensitivity in Europe to how attitudes differ generally in a lot of the global south that the war has highlighted. Because for us, it's this this moral, emotional issue that is very clear cut. And of course, I share that, but not being in Europe right now, being in Brazil, which is considers itself a Western country, um, but also perhaps part of the global South, and attitudes here are just not what we are witnessing in in Europe. Um, for a start, Europe is far away, but there's also, I think, a perception less in Brazil, but more 
in other parts of the global south that this is primarily a geopolitical issue and there's more alignment with the chinese russian narrative that this is a sort of us led position and there's certainly less sympathy for this this moral take on the war which which i share and which mo most europeans I, i i know share and i think this sort of highlights a point that we might make about the bri and uh, global politics in general which is a lack of sensitivity to different thinking whether we perceive it as as right or wrong on issues like this and i think there's a danger that we underestimate the um, the appeal of chinese leadership and how widespread anti-western sentiment is in a lot of the global south so i think it's important that europe in global gateway and its in development initiatives just proceeds with incredibly strong sensitivity to this there's not necessarily a specific uh, policy recommendation there but there needs to be certainly an awareness whenever we're doing these initiatives i don't think we want to make the trumpian the uh, the american mistake of um leading with a tirade against china which i think europe is a lot better at not doing but i think it's it's very dangerous to go into african countries and talk about uh, chinese debt traps um when there's already this sort of sense of uh, wanting to resist patronizing sort of top down development recommendations from western countries i agree with jacob and i think that the recent summit between the european union and africa is a great example of this even though the european union entered with this package with this connectivity package that the african countries did not necessarily react positively to it so this clearly shows that there is a gap between how we approach these sort of issues and how they do that and this signals that there needs to be a change in the way the european union does outreach and connectivity with the global south on that note francesca and jacob thank you for your time and insight thank you very much hans thank you thank you for joining us Here next time. Goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makoto Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merrick's.org.